welcome to the podcast of ideas. The recording you're about to hear is from a meeting of the Arts and Society Forum, which took place on Tuesday the 14th of April. This was called The Tragic Imagination in Poetry, and it was the first in a series of discussions entitled Ask the Artist, What Makes Art Work? In this discussion, the speaker was Andrew Calcutt from the University of East London, who is introducing and talking about The Burial at Thebes by Seamus Heaney. In the chair is Wendy Earle. By way of a double experiment, one is the online aspect of it. The pleasure of that is seeing people from all over the country and internationally. So I'm um, very welcome to our international guests in particular, but also from the north, south, east, west. Fantastic. Um, the other experiment is an attempt to kind of, is, is the idea of organising a series where we ask artists to talk about art that has inspired them so really talk about the form that they're interested in and this is partly out of a discussion series that Elisabetta has been organizing over the past sort of uh, 18 months or so where we're looking at the question of aesthetics and whether aesthetics what aesthetics is and uh, and that sort of thing and in a way the only way to sort of really end up thinking about aesthetics in reality is to actually talk about art so I thought we'd try this as an experimental attempt to see what that brings us. Tonight, we are, um, I've invited Andrew Calcutt to introduce his chosen work of art, which is Burial at Thebes by Seamus Heaney. And Andrew is an academic and a journalist at the University of East London, and a poet who is trying to develop what I think is probably a fairly new art form, which is sort of expressing the news in poetry, current events in poetry. He has devised a number of postcards which um, experiment with this idea of telling the news or or commenting on events, current events, poetically. And we can, that, you know, we'll we'll be talking about that during the discussion. Uh, So Andrew will be introducing Seamus Heaney's Burial at Thebes. He's asked me to read a section of it, so I'll do my best when he um, signals me to do so. And, um, and then he'll also um, talk about his own work and how the burial at Thebes or Greek tragedy more broadly has inspired his own work. So, Andrew. Perfect. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I uh, hope the journey was okay. Um, in the strange times we're in, it would be tempting, wouldn't it, to, um, to talk about the context. But, well, there are a couple of reasons why I'm not going to do that. One, one is that it actually absolutely isn't what I said I would do. The other thing is that the whole point of what I've come to say, really, is um, that the text and the composition of text is crucial and primary, I think, uh, and perhaps especially so in the, in the times we're in. A little autobiographical aside, uh, it'll be about 50 years ago, since I signed up to do Greek as well as Latin at school, and also about half a century since um, I was in a school play version of Antigone, which is what the Sophocles play is known as, which is now kind of rendered beautiful verse by um, Seamus Heaney. I mean, it was in verse to start with uh, by Sophocles. And then it was a set book for A-level. So um, half a century ago, I was quite familiar with it. 
I'd like to say that the classics have stayed with me and have been a constant concern throughout the last half century, but that's not really the case. I did my best to forget about them for about 40 years. Um, and it's only in the last five years that I've really kind of gone back and become interested again. I suppose the one element of continuity is that um, during those 40 years when I wasn't looking at the classics, I was being in one way or another a journalist. And the piece from Burial at Thebes is the messenger speech, um, which is, if you like, um, a reporter, or it is indeed a report on events which could not be shown on stage. But before I ask Wendy to, uh, to read that messenger speech, let me first say for those of you who might not have read the full text, what's happened until now. Oedipus, he who uh, killed his father, bedded his mother, is dead. His um, kingdom is now ruled by Creon, who was his brother-in-law. Let's just leave it at that. And of Oedipus's children, there are two daughters, Antigone and Ismene, uh, and two sons, Eteocles and Polynices. Eteocles just died uh, defending the city of Thebes against attack, and Polynices was killed in the same battle. But he was on the other side. He was indeed one of the attackers. And King Creon has decreed that Polynices shall not be buried, lay there on, uh, on the ground for the crows to pick at. And Antigone has vowed uh, that this shall not be allowed to happen. Indeed, she has buried him. And in turn, Creon has sentenced her to death. And his son who was due to marry Antigone, uh, is outraged by this and has gone to the burial chamber that she was due to be walled up in to join her. And now we shall hear what the messenger brings back in his report about what happened next. I can tell you the whole thing, ma'am. There's no sense in making a liar of myself. Right from the start, I was at your husband's side all of us climbing the hill, and sure enough, it was still there, Polynices' corpse, or what the dogs had left of it. So we prayed to the goddess of the crossroads and to Pluto to hold our anger back and to ignore the pitilessness of that desecration. Then we washed the remains in the purifying waters, gathered sticks and made enough of a fire to burn him decently. And as was right, we piled his home ground over him at last. Then on we went, right up to the cave mouth. And deep in that unholy vault, we hear such terrible howling as we have to send for Creon. When Creon comes, he howls himself and he knows. Oh, hide me, hide me from myself, he cries. For I face the saddest door I've ever faced. I hear my son's voice in there. Come on, he shouts, tumble the stones, break through and look and tell me, tell me it's Hyman. So we broke the barriers down as ordered and saw into the gallery Antigone was there, hanging by her neck from a linen noose. And Hyman was on the ground beside her with his arms up around her waist, imploring the underworld, lamenting his dead bride 
and shouting execrations against Creon. But Creon couldn't help himself and went with open arms to the boy and started pleading, call him son, saying he had a fit and to watch himself. But Haman spat in his face and made a quick lunge with his two-edged sword and would have got him if Creon hadn't dodged. Then before we knew where we were, he had turned the sword on himself and buried half the blade in his own side. And as he was collapsing, his arm still clung to the girl and blood came spurting out of his mouth all over her white cheek. That was the kiss he gave his bride-to-be. A wedding witnessed in the halls of death and one to teach us living witnesses the mortal cost of ill-judged words and deeds. The messenger speech, first thing I want you to observe is that it's heightened speech. What do I mean by that? Well, the first thing I think you hear in the very sound of it uh, is indeed the rhythm. And as soon as um, speech is deliberately rhythmic, it already looks to allotted time, doesn't it? The fact that we don't live forever. Every beat in a line of poetry is related to a, to a heartbeat of which there is only a limited number. It is a kind of, is not indefinite. So as soon as you have meter, and, and there definitely is some here, you also have an indication of mortality. Meter and mortality, I think, um, go together well. The other thing that we have here, most evidently in this heightened speech, um, is the work of, in this instance, not one, but two poets. And by poets, I mean people whose job it is to know where all of these words have been before. In other words, since we're talking about burial, each of these words is, apart from its direct meaning, a relic of how it's been used before and the context in which it has been used before. And yet, lest I sound too um, uh, morbid about it, because of where they've been before, because of the previous usages that they cannot help but represent and which are indeed represented by the writer, they are also alive with possibilities. And when a, a writer, and in particular a, a poet who chooses words perhaps particularly carefully, in choosing those words, they are making them into kind of little projectiles, mobiles, uh, alive with various possible meanings. And the, the poet invites us as an audience to, they say to us, come, come with me and see where I'm taking that word to. See with me what nuance I'm bringing to it that is drawing on the way it's been used before and yet is reworking it in this now in this new context. As long as you follow me to the precise usage which I'm making of it here, in doing that you will also be aware of the roads that I'm not taking, the nuances that I'm not using, um, that you will recognise, hopefully, as you follow me in this um, adventure. And in that respect, I think the poet is calling out to our imagination, not only, well, in, well, in two ways, to, to come with him into this world that he will make real, even though it's a fantasy, but also, as I say, in respect of, of the atoms of all of this, the particles, which are the words, which come with memories and are alive with their past usage 
which the poet asks us to be aware of. And as I say, out of that, to be aware of how precisely he's using a particular word in this particular context, and in the same breath, to be aware of how it's not being used in that. Is it the Robert Frost poem, The Paths Not Taken? In both ways, we're being asked to exercise our imagination. So from what I've said so far, I think in the cell form of this work, uh, in its smallest elements, in the sound of it, and in the words which are its um, atoms, there, there is already a duality of the preset or the predetermined, that which is set free, the lively words alive with possibilities, and the reference to mortality. And if that's um, a duality that is in the, um, the cell form, the smallest particles of this tragedy, then so too is it true of uh, tragedy as an entire art form. It is an ambiguous combination of the liturgical and the rational. Its roots are in a festival of Dionysus, there is, throughout ancient tragedy, a liturgical element, uh, even in the work of uh, Euripides, who's sometimes said to be the most modern of the ancients. But there is also um, the rational, the space for, and those of you who've read the Seamus Heaney rendition will be familiar with the exchanges between, for example, Creon and Antigone, Creon and his son Hymen, where there is uh, deliberation of a kind of legal stamp, uh, of a paralegal kind, alongside the elements of myth, the operations of the, the allegiances and the loyalties um, and the obligations owed to the gods, who are not subject to anything like paralegal cross-questioning or deliberation. In the whole of this tragic form, the elements of the preset, the predetermined, if you like, and that which is being set free. What's set free um, is indeed the capacity for human beings, and here they are on stage in the form of mythical characters, but human beings nonetheless, to work out as best they can what could be done in these circumstances. Alongside the dialogue, you will have noticed the imagery and the imagery, too, I would suggest, is inscribed with this duality, this combination. There, there are rational aspects in the way the poet uses imagery, as in, follow me in my observation of the similar in, the, in what appear to be these dissimilarities. Yes, it, you can follow me. There's a logic to it. And yet there's also something that defies logic that is quite, well, I was going to say deliberately, but deliberation it isn't. Um, but it is essentially magical alongside the rational. And I think those two aspects, again, are embedded in the imagery as they are in the unfolding of the narrative with its mythic elements, but also its elements of deliberation, which are almost like a kind of court case or, or a trial. Then there's the theatre itself, which has another range of dualities embedded in it, an unreal world, and yet at the same time a real space for deliberation, for description, and for people in the audience accepting the invitation to 
recognize themselves and their own moral dilemmas, quandaries of their real lives in this, quote, unreal world, which is also uh, a real space. It's a special place that's set aside from the daily life of the people in the audience, but it's also a kind of placeholder for an emerging culture in which this habit of scrutiny, self-scrutiny, and scrutinizing other people who are also scrutinizing me, so that there are constantly, continually recurring relations of reciprocal scrutiny and, and, and regard, including the kind of regard that goes with self-consciousness. That culture which is um, em emerging at, at this time and is being played out uh, in the theatre involves a projection of the self, uh, something that is beyond the literal, ordinary uh, me, myself and I self, um, which indeed I suggest becomes a moral imagination on the, on the part of the audience uh, as, as a body of, of people, becomes their moral imagination when it is enacted uh, by performers on the stage and the audience scrutinizing their performance and the moral dilemmas that are presented in it. Performers and audience in concert enacting, perhaps for the first time in human history, a fully-fledged moral imagination. And this takes me away from emphasis on the text to say a bit more about the context of ancient Athens, a society which at this moment when tragedy originated was in transition from uh, the predominance of the extended family to the emergence of the, the polity, the birth of democracy. But this, the life of the Greek tragedy, um, the, the kind of the shelf life of it, was not at any point resoundingly resolved. It remains unresolved. And in recognition of this, in reflection uh, of that lack of resolution, there is might and there is right on both sides, as shown in this uh, drama, on the side of family um, and on the side of the city-state, uh, as here represented by Creon. There is might and right on both sides, and the contradictions between the two remain unresolved. Uh, in fact, in this context, by and through Greek tragedy, um, there is a recognition uh, that contradiction conditions human existence. Contradiction is the human condition, and it is universal. And it's the contradiction between what we might now call identity. I am this, I am exactly this and no more, and it's what I was born into, versus the culture of the polity in which we can become what we choose to become uh, through a process of deliberation. And the contradiction between the two is, is decidedly, decisively not resolved. And the, the element here that is reflective of uh, the development of rational deliberation is not supreme. It does not predominate. Indeed, the context in which this 
form of art was developed you know that lack of resolution as is indeed very true to the historically specific context in which the transition between family and polity uh, is not finally concluded so contradiction is the universal condition and tragedy befalls those who do not recognize it who do not see the contradiction in themselves who do not see the other in themselves if you like the tragic form is a, is a showing of how this resolution is of contradiction is beyond us but it's not resignation and i think that's very important it's a concession that to resolve this contradiction is more than we can do but the description itself is the opposite of resignation it is roughly speaking what terry eagleton might would call in fact he has called it hope without optimism in the description there is hope there is an expression of humanity conscious of itself and conscious that it is characterized conditioned by contradiction and where there is a sufficient description then it suffices to transform what would remain as this unique suffering of specific individuals into an expression of a universal human condition but for that description to be sufficient to perform that transformation well it has to be tragedy <laughs> or in the phrase that i used earlier it has to be heightened speech in order to for the description to have that transformative quality only heightened speech will do um, and it's through that heightened speech here in the form of tragedy that author and audience exercise their concerted imagination um, in both an aesthetic and a moral aspect so that was the context in which this kind of tragedy was developed is it only resonant for that particular context or does it have resonances uh, way beyond that uh, well you can guess i'm going to say the latter i am saying to borrow from a different kind of philosophical language but insofar as we are a contradiction of subject and object we are subjects up to a point but also objects of forces beyond our control we still live in in a contradiction along those lines and in that respect this showing of contradiction is is res must resonate with anyone who makes the effort to rise to the level of that heightened speech in fact I'd, I'd go further i'd say that in in these precise conditions of recent decades um there is a special resonance uh in that i think we are somewhere caught between a sense of agency and the absence of a sense of being history making subjects that is to say the condition we're in i think is is very much defined um by a contradiction wherein we have a sense of being able to do something but not that much we we if you like we don't hold the trump card we are the sense of ourselves as history as the subject of history 
historical thinking, thinking of ourselves as, as having the decisive role to play in making history, um, that kind of self-consciousness, I think, is, is notably absent. But that's not to say there is no sense of agency. Of course, there is. But that's the point. We are in between. We in, are living in the contradiction. We are conditioned by the contradiction that is in between agency and history and the sense of history making uh, subject. And I think the times we live in are also characterized, I'm ashamed to say, by rampant misrecognition. Because you see, tragedy, according to the ancients, befalls those people who do not, as I say, recognize the contradiction in the situation that they're in. And look at the way we tell stories about ourselves today and about other people today and how um, that, those storytelling methods, those storytelling formats uh, seem to me to misrecognize what we are and, and what they claim to be uh, describing. I'm talking about journalism, uh, among other things. The traditional pro version of professional journalism, which has a kind of heightened speech about it, but it's thinned out to the point that we really only ever get one-dimensional versions of the people in the stories. And then there's the newer version of journalism, which is very much influ influenced by social media, which is deliberately uh, or intentionally conversational, which, which sets out to avoid heightened speech. There's a kind of tyranny of informality about it, where you're, you're not allowed, almost, um, to aim to raise the conversation uh, to, to that kind of level. Uh, you've got to keep it informal. You've got to keep it away from the kind of level of heightened speech, which I think is the only level at which we can realise and express common humanity and do justice to the kind of contradiction that we're in. So, finally, coming to the peculiar context that we're in over the last few weeks, um, the pandemic, which is supposed to have reminded us, among other things, that there is such a thing as a society. As society. But does it? I mean, <laughs> the logic of what I've just been saying would be that uh, a society that doesn't yet have a sufficient way of describing itself and the people by, by whom it is constituted is not yet a society. And I think that's exactly what is emerging, isn't it? In the, in the recognition, but how to describe it, of how this um, pandemic is treating different people differently. And also, without wishing to seem sort of unduly churlish, in the inadequacy of the descriptions that we've been offered so far. So what is there to choose from? There's the children's rainbows. Uh, there's the BBC promo, which goes for heightened speech um, and tries to present public interest broadcasting, public service broadcasting, as a kind of further emergency service and becomes unduly self-serving in the process. There's the, um, the Boris Panto. Uh, he's kind of back in Panto mode. Uh, at least the public image uh, is, is in that element, I think. 
Um, now he's out of hospital. Probably the best, the best there's been so far is the Queen. Um, I'd say she's told the best story of the state we're in, although I you know, hate to admit it. There's not enough, I think, to, uh, for, for us to come together as a society. We don't yet have a sufficient description of the condition we're in because, or not least, because the descriptions we're being offered uh, do not even begin to address, let alone grasp, the contradiction. The contradiction that, in the tragic imagination, uh, conditions our existence. So, in my attempts to um, do tragedy via tabloids, uh, to do tragedy in fragments that are built up, well, starting with contradiction is what I'm hoping to do and hoping, you know, you'll be the judge through heightened speech to arrive at a description of the condition we're in, um, which, which would serve us as tragedy and the tragic imagination uh, served the ancient Greeks. I'd just like to read a, a couple of these. This is going back, it seems like ancient history now, to um, the time when um, coronavirus was far away. So, postcard from Yokohama, written on the 21st of February. Between boredom, anger and fear, ship's passengers travel at their own pace. She's docked and locked down, stock still because of COVID-19. From diamond princess to petri dish, awash with infection. No more bottomless buffet of live entertainment. Confined to cabins, their minds inclined to play tricks. Against the strict imposition of quarantine, anger comes easily. When it's not even strict, fear rises like fever. There's something in the air we share, they vent. The vessel's bloodstream is a thousand crew, delivering and picking up from every cabin, sharing showers with the sick without caring. We're stuck in a box already contaminated. As paradise sweeps the Oscars, who's hoovering this deck stands in for the millions most at risk from global pandemic. Wishing that the world's poor will not be poorly protected. Yours truly, the news poet. Postcard from Purgatory, 3rd of April. Do they also serve who only stand and wait? Called upon occasionally to clap for those with near immunity from demoralization. Our hearts and highest accolades go out to nurses and doctors we give thanks for their life-saving work, especially when losing a patient drains away their courage, almost. Are we also allowed to envy their activity when their 12-hour shift storms past as in a single blast? What could be more entrancing than snatching the quick from the dead? Dear NHS staff, spare a thought for those consigned to the waiting room of history waiting for Godot or simply the bank manager's reply. The dangerous, onerous mission that brings you back from the jaws of hell, of hell seems to us like very heaven. Wishing we could all make a worthwhile contribution, yours truly, the news poet. And this, to conclude, is a postcard from Palliative Care written yesterday.
I'm not lonely, but I am alone, said she who'd sat beside her husband as he exhaled for the last time. Recorded for radio, struggling not to be beside herself, acknowledging contact from churchgoers rallying round remotely. Near normal, recalling the speakerphone three-way with kids in Canada and India, being mothers much easier. Then back to bereft. Adam and Eve it, without her other half, it's like a ribs ripped out. Her late husband had had enough. Likewise on the world stage, Uncle Sam's losing the will to win. Vying for access to a preening president, dominating DC, Oval Office politics, Trump's public interest, and the nation's already failed the occasion. America, is this where you are? Manifestly destined for palliative care. USA equals DNR. Wishing to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Yours truly, the news poet. So this was meant to be all about tragedy, but of course the last line is um, how some people define satire. Comfort the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Thanks to Wendy and Andrew. And if you'd like to attend the second of the Arts and Society Forum's Ask the Artist series, it's called The Novel Lives and is taking place on Tuesday the 12th of May at 7 o'clock. Head to the Academy of Ideas website to reserve your space. All of our salons and forums at the Academy of Ideas are free and online during this coronavirus lockdown. But that means we need your help. And so if you can give anything big or small, please head to academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. And anything is greatly appreciated by the team. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you again soon.